it's Phil Croshaw again from Passions, and in this episode, I'm joined by theatre producer Gary England. Hello and a very warm welcome to this episode of Passions and today I'm delighted to be joined by Gary England and uh, Gary is has got all sorts of experience but today I'm talking about talking to him about his theatre production uh, work uh, which is very relevant especially at the moment as we're recording this in December 2020 and of course, we all know what's happened with the entertainment industry this year, which we'll, we'll get Gary to, to have a chat with us about. So a uh, very warm welcome to Passions, Gary. Thanks, Phil. It's really good to be here. Fantastic. So just tell us, start off by telling us a bit about your story, your passion, what you would describe it as, uh, and then a bit about your background. Fantastic. So I guess kind of my passion has always been theatre. And um, from a very young age, um, I just fell in love with it. Um, I remember my mum had a pen friend that she'd been writing to for 16 years. And, um, and they finally came to London. Um, and I was 10 years old at that time. And um, they brought me along to London with um, her pen friend and her husband and my dad. And we went to see Evita, um, the original production of Evita at the Prince Edward Theatre. Um, I was 10 years old and just absolutely mesmerised with it. And, um, and, and theatre has been my passion um, ever since. There's, um, to, I mean, to demonstrate just how um, ruthless I was as a child, um, <laughs> My parents, we lived in the Midlands and uh, my family never really went to the theatre um, at all. Even coming to London was a special occasion. So I'd been begging them since the age of 10 when they took me to see Evita to take me back um, and they never got around to it. So when I was 13 years old, and this is an absolutely true story, I was 13 years old, I came home from school and I booked a train ticket and a theatre ticket to see 42nd Street um, at Drury Lane um, on my dad's credit card. Oh. And um, I was pot washing in a hotel at the time to um, pocket money at weekends. <laughs> and I said, I said to my dad that if he let me go, I would pay him back. And if he didn't, I wouldn't. And my dad was so tight fisted that at the age of 13, he let me jump on a train to London and come and see 42nd Street on my own. Uh, and so I used to do it every month after that. Um, and the rule was that I had to do a matinee and um, I had to be back at rugby train station by um, eight o'clock in the evening. Well, that's, that's reasonable, I think, actually. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and what's suppose interesting about that in, you know, in those terms of sliding doors is if he kicked off and said, absolutely not. And if you ever do it again, then I'll throw you out the back door, never to be loud in again. Who knows where, where your career or where you, your life might have gone. <laughs> I might have been playing the leading Oliver. <laughs> it, it could have been. It could have been. Um, so obviously you you obviously love theatre and um, you know I, I need to mention it because it's the type this time of um, this time of year or this this particular year uh, it must have been devastating when everything happened with COVID because the impact it's had on theatre in particular 
Um, must have been devastating emotionally, emotionally, never mind work-wise. Um, absolutely. I mean, at the time I was working at English National Opera, um, where I had been for four years, and we had just opened the Marriage of Figaro on um, on the Saturday evening, um, as Boris made the announcement and theatres closed down um, on Monday the 16th of March. And um, it was the most surreal experience. I mean, I remember walking out of the Colosseum um, and actually walking up Shaftesbury Avenue and um, seeing audiences out on the street, cast members out on the street because um, theatres didn't perform that night, but everyone was still in town. And um, yeah, it was... You know, it was almost like, um, you know, that that atmosphere that we all experienced during um, the London bombings and 9-11. Um, it was just quite an out-of-body experience. Um, but as the months and months have gone on, um, you know, at that time in March, I don't think anyone thought, certainly I didn't think that it would go on as long as it did. You know, we all thought it might be three, six, nine weeks, but we thought certainly by September um, that things would be back to normal. But of course, you know, it's a very different story. And tens of thousands of people that work in the arts have um, fallen you know, through um, the government support and, you know, have literally been left without an income um, and without their professions really being respected. Yeah, no, I, I know it's a, I know it's a huge issue. Um, and, and is it, is it fair to say that, that you, there must be an amazing kind of almost like tentative excitement that they've got the vaccine we've got the vaccine in that it just maybe this time last next year we're looking back and maybe interviewing you again saying <laughs> do you remember do you remember 2020 gary <laughs> is there a kind of a cautious optimism shall we say right now um, I think there is. I mean, I think, you know, in these times, we all have to be glass half full um, and, and look towards that hope. And, you know, hopefully um, it will be a spring of hope. You know, if the, the vaccine is rolled out, then there's obviously going to be a time delay in terms of the volume um, of vaccine that's required. But um, hopefully by spring, certainly by summer, um, then, you know, fingers crossed, um, we'll get back to some form of normality. Um, I mean, the industry really needs that. Um, and, and not just the theatre industry, you know, it's, it's the entire hospitality industry of hotels, restaurants, live events. Yeah, the, the whole package. Absolutely. So tell me about this show that you've got going on. I think you just started it, haven't you? Day, yesterday or very recently. Last uh, night. Chris, yeah. Last night. Yeah. Last I thought night it was, was the first preview. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so uh, a Christmas Carol. Tell mm. Start from the beginning. How did it come about? So, how did it go in and so on? How did it come about? Um, so um, in... February 2019, um, I met um, this amazing guy called um, Freddie Tapner. Um, Freddie is the chief exec of London Musical Theatre Orchestra, and he uh, absolutely loves Alan Menken and had presented A Christmas Carol, Alan Menken's version of A Christmas Carol, um, with lyrics by Lynn Ahrens and the book by Mike Ockrent. Um, he'd done it as a concert um, version before, and I was working at English National Opera. Um, we were discussing um, the musical. Um, I watched a desk recording um, 
of the show. I absolutely loved it. And to cut a very long story short, um, we decided that we would do um, a semi-staged um, production of A Christmas Carol um, at the London Coliseum um, with um, English National Opera. Um, that was confirmed and went on sale in December of last year. Um, and was meant to be presented for a week from the 30th of November to the 6th of December this year. Um, fast forwarding again, and obviously um, we go into um, COVID times. And um, as with all arts institutions, um, it simply wasn't commercially viable to present it at English National Opera um, to a socially distanced audience, um, particularly with a new production. So, um, Fast forwarding again, um, in August, it was, yeah, I went on holiday in August, came back the second week in September, and Freddie and I sat down um, to discuss it. Um, the production at English National Opera um, had been cancelled, and we both said, um, you know, shall we try, shall we really try and do something with it? Um, and, you know, in theatre, particularly when you're producing, so many stars have to align for something to come off. Um, you know, you need the rights, you need availability of a theatre, um, you need a cast. Um, and it was the second week in September that we said, shall we do something about it? On the beginning of October, um, we got a call saying that the Dominion had availability and we went to site visit um, the Dominion and had a look. Um, at it. Um, it's a beautiful, beautiful theatre. Prince of Egypt um, was on stage. And um, we had the opportunity of four weeks um, at the Dominion over Christmas. Fortunately, um, we already had the rights to the show. And um, Freddie and I discussed it. And we both said that, you know, um, there would not be another moment in history where we could get the Dominion for four weeks over Christmas. Um, and if we didn't go for it now, um, then it would never, ever happen. Um, so we basically just, um, I don't know if it was madness or stupidity, um, but we just jumped in feet first. So um, last night was the first public preview. And um, last night was um, 77 days um, since we went to first site visit the Dominion. Um, so wow. you know, most musicals are probably, um, you know, in concept for two to three years. Um, certainly, you know, musicals don't come to stage normally within at least eight or nine months. So uh, it's been this Herculean task, not just for Freddie and I, but for the whole team that have joined us on this journey. So in, um, a, in, in a sense, then, you've actually replicated the vaccine scenario, haven't you? <laughs> normally, <laughs> normally takes five years to do a vaccine, but we've got one almost overnight in relative terms. Was that quite yeah. a... Were you, were you um, really excited to be doing it, or was it more sheer fright, or a bit of both? It was, um, I think... You know, it certainly it, we were very passionate about doing it. Um, I think, you know, it was something that we were driven to do um, from our hearts rather than our minds. Um, I mean, ultimately, 
apart from you know with there's nymax theatres and a handful of other theatres you've probably got 12 theatres in total out of you know about 150 that are open this christmas in london um so you certainly don't go into it with a commercial or a business mindset and you don't go into it with a mindset of making any money um out of it um i think it was it was driven through our hearts and it was the fact that we wanted to do something and we wanted if at all possible to give work um, to actors um, technical crew stage doorkeepers front of house staff anybody within the industry um, we just wanted to get back to work and you know i i think there was there was there there has been you know a huge kind of you know business mindset in terms of mitigating risk and cost because you can't get insurance um for covid in theater at the moment so it's a right. hugely risky business um but ultimately you know it it came from the heart so i don't think i don't think i'm probably going to state the absolute obvious now when they were <clears throat> considering the different tiers <laughs> was that a time for you that you perhaps aged a number of years when you were deciding <laughs> what London was going to be? Absolutely. You know, I used to have brown hair before Halloween <laughs> this year. <laughs> That's not true. Um, yeah, I mean, we... Um, we went on sale with a Christmas Carol on the 16th of October. And that was a time when um, Sleepless had been presented in the summer to a socially distanced audience. And, um, and, and Nika had reopened NIMAX theatres. So, um, you know, uh, theatres were reopening and um, we thought that we would just stay in the tier system. Um, so, you know, 15 days later on Halloween, when lockdown two was announced, um, there were some really, really dark days um, after that. And, you know, ultimately we are not Arts Council funded. Um, we're commercial producers and, um, and we don't have um, a bottomless pot of cash. Sure. Um, so, yeah, it was it was very, very difficult because it's not only our money that's invested, it's our investors money. And there's obviously a huge sense of responsibility um, that goes along with that. So we literally from that Saturday evening at about seven o'clock through to um, Wednesday lunchtime, um, it was a roller coaster of emotions. It was a lot of scenario planning. It was a lot of Excel spreadsheets. And we thought, should we just pull the production now um, and save 75% of the capitalization? Um, or do we plow ahead with it? And, you know, it kind of it felt premature and it felt wrong um, to, to cancel at that point. Um, and so we literally just focused hour by hour, day by day, um, and moved the project forward. And we went into rehearsals kind of two weeks ago. So we were actually two days into rehearsals um, with the full cast when um, it was announced that London was in tier two. So, um, you know, that, that sense of relief, joy, excitement, you know, I can't tell you, um, you know, what that was like for us and the entire company. But, you know, it was, it was bittersweet because of all of our 
colleagues in the industry, um, you know, particularly in the north, um, places such as Newcastle, Manchester, where they're still in tier three and still wondering, will they be able to open um, after the next review in December? Yeah, absolutely. I'm 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 in I'm Mancunian myself, so I'm in Manchester at the moment. I can honestly tell you, I feel like we've been the in the depths of darkness for about ten years. Yeah, I can't, I can't remember the last time when we we could do much. To be honest, <laughs> so enjoy yeah, uh, no, what you can. I think is, is what strikes me. Um, so obviously, um, funnily enough, actually, just tell just tell me a few of the people, two of the cast members, because one or two well-known names, haven't you got in the show, haven't you? I mean, it is the most incredible cast and there's not another time in history where we will have a cast like this. Um, it's led by um, Brian Conley, um, who is absolutely fantastic. Um, you know, he's he's an old school showman and he's not only brilliant on stage, but he leads the company um, from the front. Um, and Brian's joined by Jacqueline Josser um, from EastEnders, I'm a Celebrity um, winner, 2019. Um, it's Jack's debut um, in the West End and she is having an absolute ball. Um, and, you know, um, considering that it's her first experience in the theatre, um, you know, she literally um, fits in with the entire company and um, and is an absolute natural um, for musical theatre. Um, Matt J. Willis um, also joins us as Bob Cratchit. Um, Lucy Jones, um, Sandra Marvin, um, Jeremy Seckham, who played the Phantom of the Opera, various other West End roles. Um, so it, it literally is the most phenomenal cast. And, and how wonderful was it for them uh, to be performing again as performers? It must have been like, if you pardon the pun, Christmas five times over, was it for them <laughs> to be performing? Mind you, to be fair with... To be fair with uh, with Jack, I suppose at least Jack wasn't uh, eating ca camel's balls in this particular uh, event. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> must have been an up. There must have been an upside to that. So were they very excited? Oh, I mean, incredibly, absolutely, incredibly. I mean, words just simply cannot describe. Um, you know, and and there are various points. I mean, first of all, there's there's the conversation where they're actually offered the role. That's exciting. Um, then there's the first day of rehearsal. Um, then there's the sits probe where the cast meet the orchestra for the first time. Then there's their first day on stage. Um, and last night, um, you know, literally the doors of the theatre opened at 6.30. And the atmosphere in the theatre, both from the audience and backstage from the cast. Um, it was really like nothing that I've ever experienced before. Yeah, I've, I've said to a few people, actually, I, I, my, my instincts on it are that because people have been starved of live entertainment for so long, I think that when we are, in, shall we say, green for go again, maybe the you know, latter end of the summer or whenever that might be, I think the demand for live entertainment, including theatre, will be, I suspect, will be huge. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I, it, it sounds really corny and really cheesy, but um, I'm just going to say it. I think, you know, the thing that 
The thing that I've always loved and I think why I've been so passionate about live theatre is that it's an emotional experience. It comes from the heart. You shouldn't have to think about it. Um, you should absolutely just feel it. And I think, you know, whether that's live theatre, whether that's a rock and pop gig, whether that's a comedian, you know, whatever form of live entertainment that is, um, you know, that's a feeling that comes from within, um, whether you're a customer or a performer. And it's something that you simply can't replicate. Um, I, you know, I've, I've always said if I didn't have theatre in my life, I would have spent decades in therapy. Um, and, and the reason that I say that is because whatever, whatever is going on in my life, um, however bad I feel, um, whatever problems I've got, I can walk into a theatre, sit down, and when the lights go down, I forget everything for two hours and it gives you a window into another world and you know that's just the most incredible experience but also in terms of um you know wellfulness um and mental health you know certainly for me personally it's incredibly important i'm sure a lot of people can probably relate to that so let's just just have a quick delve into that then uh, i'm not putting you on the couch here it's not a, it's not a therapy session you don't need to worry um but um lots of people enjoy the theater i can remember i think um when i was about 12 my mum and dad took me to see um jesus christ superstar actually in london and um it was i remember being absolutely in awe of it and such like so lots of people get experience in, is it with the theatre and live entertainment relatively young but they don't necessarily make a career out of it even if they enjoy it and they're passionate about it so how did you and, and why did you were you kind of always convinced that you would make a career out of it or did you just go kind of go on a journey and it just happened that way um, I never ever considered it as a career um, I didn't I you know I I think there was an element of of thinking that actually you know your hobby and your passion is your hobby and your passion and your work is your work yeah and um when i was at school um i was good at i was really good at two things um i could cook really well and um i loved um art and um i was really good at drawing and painting and so um i was thinking of going into career that was you know either um around catering and being a chef um or about you know being a graphic designer and um the problem with graphic design or the problem for me with drawing is that i could copy really well i could pay tribute to other people but i really couldn't draw well from my own imagination so um apart from forgeries there really wasn't a career there for me um so as i said earlier yeah. i started i started washing pots in a hotel when i was 12 um and then graduated to peeling vegetables when i was 13. um and then i moved front of house as a waiter um when i was 14. Um, to cut a very long story short, um, I pursued a career in hotels and, um, and was a conference and banqueting manager um, within a number of, um, of five-star convention hotels um, throughout the 90s. And it was really through conference and banqueting that um, that fulfilled that passion that I had for um, live events and for that sense of occasion um, and that thrill that that you get, whether that's, you know, a gala dinner, um, an annual conference, um, a product launch, um, a wedding, whatever that may be. 
And, um, and, and then in the late 90s, early noughties, it was 98 to 2005, um, I was working in Docklands um, in a conference hotel. And um, I got headhunted for a job at the Barbican Centre. And um, that role was um, was a really difficult time for the Barbican, where um, the Royal Shakespeare Company um, were leaving Barbican Theatre to do uh, more work in the provinces and the regions. And, um, and the Barbican were facing not only the loss of income from the RSC, but a cut in funding from the Corporation of London. Mm. So um, for the first time in the Barbican's history, it had to be more commercial. So my role um, was head of corporate sales, and it was really um, programming Barbican Theatre and establishing the Barbican Centre um, as a conference and events um, venue within London, um, not just an arts venue. But um, as part of that role, I had to work really closely with different art form heads in terms of balancing their budget and saying, you know, if you want to present the best, the five best orchestras in the world, then you need to give me um, six weeks a year that I can program corporate events and you know industrial theater product launches um etc so um, i spent seven and a half years um doing that and um and that was really my route into the arts um so it happened by complete chance and then um continuing after that in um in 2005 um i was really really lucky um to be approached um, about a sales and marketing director's role at Ascot Racecourse. And, um, and to be honest, I turned the interview down three times. Um, and, and the reason that I did that was, um, was one, you know, I, I was really happy at the Barbican, but I was aware that actually I'd done pretty much as much as I could, I could do and really wanted to hand over the reins to someone else to bring something different to it. Um, but the two main reasons was that I didn't know the one end of a horse from another. Um, you know, I really didn't. It was like, you know, pin the tail on the donkey. Um, and um, I had no um, passion, enthusiasm or wish to either work at a sports venue um, or take a job that was outside of central London. So um, eventually the recruitment consultant said to me, you do realize they're spending 250 million on rebuilding the grandstand. Um, and so I said, no. So I had a look at the website, looked at the scale of the development. Um, I went along for the first interview to cut a long story short. Um, throughout that interview process, um, I fell more and more in love with um, with the values and the brand of um, Ascot, um, and particularly Royal Ascot. And I think more importantly than that, every person that I met along that interview process, um, I felt that um, I really admired, respected. Um, I felt that I culturally fitted and um, I was lucky enough to be offered the job. I accepted it. I only ever intended to be there for two years um, to get it on my CV um, and to open the building and um, establish it in the new venue. And um, I ended up being there for nearly 10 years. 
Gosh. Um, and when, when people say to me, you know, uh, what do you think about Royal Ascot? Um, you know, factually, it is the greatest race meeting in the world by virtue of the fact that they do seven Group 1 top flight races on the global stage. The race course is owned by Her Majesty the Queen and... Um, and, and Royal Ascot is the biggest theatrical event um, that you will ever see. Wow. So, I mean, what what, um, what interests me about that story is, that, well, I know from a, a limited amount of experience that people very rarely have any idea about the level of organisation <laughs> and the level of stress that goes with it in terms of organising any event, never mind on <laughs> Never mind on that scale, where probably the exp expectations of clientele are quite significantly high. Was was that an opportunity to develop all those organisation skills and communication skills and influencing skills that have obviously helped you in your career since? Um, totally, absolutely. I think you know before before Ascot, um, you know. Um, Many, many friends and colleagues in the industry would say that I, I was a control freak um, and a perfectionist and that I had a very um, narrow view of um, how I wanted things done. And, um, and the thing that Ascot taught me and gave me, which I'll be forever grateful for, is, um, is that ability to let go um, and to put your faith um, in others and to inspire others and do everything that you can to, to share that passion and that fire that's burning in your heart, um, share that with them and then let them go off on their own journey um, and contribute to that bigger picture. And, you know, I joined Asker in 2005. It was October 2005. So it was about nine months ahead of reopening the new grandstand. So um, if you imagine um, Royal Asker attracts 315,000 people over five days and it's broadcast, um, you know, I, I don't know, across the world, um, yeah, billions, millions, of people millions, um, yeah. watch it um, on TV. Um, so the eyes of the world are literally um, on you for those five days. And it became really clear, probably around Easter, that, um, that I just couldn't hold on to it anymore. I had to kind of like let it go. Um, the numbers are telephone numbers. Um, and... And yeah, it's kind of, it was a really, really valuable lesson. Um, and, and I guess also I don't have children, so I don't, I don't know that, that kind of feeling of being a parent, but um, I imagine that actually it's the closest thing that you can get to it in terms of, um, of handing something that is very close to you over and sharing it um, with someone. There's kind of almost a family and a paternal feeling that you develop with um, the team and with your colleagues um, when you go through that kind of experience. And that's something that, you know, absolutely happens within live theatre all of the time. Um, it, it is almost a surrogate family yeah I, I can get i do get that totally um and um you know i've been involved in um large corporate organizations um and, and i think what's also interesting well a few things interesting about that i mean the first thing is that i think it's it's, it's good that you have the self-awareness to realize that you were a bit 
being a bit controlling and that only you could do it because if you haven't got the self-awareness then you never you never let go and it usually ends up in disaster <laughs> um um but the recognition i suppose and it's something that happens in the business world a lot where i tend to spend most of my time you know where um very often my clients will say to me i've just nobody can do it as well as me mm. you know or i don't think anybody can do it as well as me and it's a dangerous place to be isn't it absolutely absolutely um, and and i think that uh, it's almost like a um a milestone perhaps in any career where you actually realize that you need to let go and, and mentor people. I mean, is that something you do more as you've got older now? Do you tend to act? Do you think you might not have even thought of it this way, but do you think that you mentor people based on your own experience to help them achieve more? Yeah. I mean, I, I you know, I, I don't personally consider it as mentoring. I think it's around, um, certainly it, that Ascot taught me to become a team player, um, a lot more and, um, and uh, to be a collaborator. Um, and I, I think kind of coaching, um, as well and to, to see people grow and to flourish and to give them, um, you know, a, an environment where there's a safety net, um, that it's okay to fail, it's okay to make a mistake. Um, you know, you're not gonna lose your job over it. The world isn't gonna come to an end. Um, and to to watch people take the reins um, and, and do something, you know, that, that's perhaps, you know, in most instances, very different to the way that you would do it, um, but to do it brilliantly. And for me, in turn, to see um, not only their growth, um, but actually their talent and creativity um, developing at the same time. Um, you know, it's it's hugely, hugely rewarding. It, it is, and, and it can be very gratifying. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm an old man now. And um, basically, I, I do now and again, we'll get people who will email me or phone me and say, uh, just wanted you to know, I've just got this promotion. And 10 years ago, you were my or 20 years ago, you were my boss. And I got a lot from you. And I, I you know, I learned a lot from you. And I've, I've still to this day, I still talk about some of the things that you taught me. There's something very special about hearing that from people who you've, whose lives you've made a difference in, but you've no idea that that's yeah. going on in the background. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. I think, you know, for, for all of us, you know, um, life is a struggle and it's as much um, luck. And, you know, there, there's that old saying that um, people don't leave jobs, people leave people or people leave employers. Um, and I think that's absolutely true. You know, there have been, you know, I've, I think I've been really, really lucky in my career There, um, there are people that, um, you know, I've, I've given me opportunity that I hugely, hugely respect and um, I've become and, and will always be lifelong friends. Um, and equally, there are people that have come into, you know, my team, either at senior or at junior levels um, that, you know, I remain personal friends with. Um, and I've, you know, been lucky enough to watch um, them blossom and grow and be successful kind of in their own right. You know, I, <clears throat> I've said this so many times in these interviews. I've been interviewing people for quite some time, quite a few years now. And it might not surprise you to, to hear that I hear many, many, many people who have achieved some really great things or interesting things um, who will use that word luck a lot. <laughs> 
And I sit there outside looking in and having done some research on, on this area as well of success and achievement and fulfillment is the, the, there's a lot less luck involved than people realize. I don't know whether it's a British thing where it's like, oh, it was just lucky. Oh, don't, you know, it's nothing. It was nothing, you know. But there's a lot of decisions that people make. Or I mean, if I take yourself now as an example where you were just telling me about there was this opportunity came along but there's, you know, to, to do the show and there's this huge mountain in front of you. Well, it wasn't luck that you decided to actually give it a go. <laughs> you no, know, it, no, no, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. <laughs> I think, you know, I'm, I, I genuinely, I genuinely, genuinely believe um, from the bottom of my heart that if you want something bad enough, um, you can have anything. And I think that goes for anybody. And it is absolutely about, you know, having, it's not about being ruthless or about, you know, um, um, anything like that, but it is about an internal drive and wanting something so badly that you're not going to give up on it. And, and then I think, you know, luck finds you or you make luck yeah. um, or, or things happen. But um, yeah, absolutely. It's kind of, I, I, I think it is around that drive that, that, that people have. Fantastic. Right. Okay. I'm, I'm going to call it a day there because there's, there's just so much we could talk about. And I'm just so delighted that you've been able to find the time for me, Gary, because I know it's a, a very hectic time. Um, I suppose final question, um, if you get the crystal ball out, uh, if, have you got any idea what might be next or is <laughs> it just recovering January and, and think about what's next? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, it's kind of, you know, we had our first preview last night and we run at the Dominion until the 2nd of January. Um, so at the moment, I'm, I'm, I'm still kind of in the eye of the storm, um, as it were, and Christmas Carol is my life. Um, I'm looking at um, three or four projects for next year. Um, hopefully they will come off if the stars align. Um, but at the moment, um, you know, I'm just so grateful to be in this position um, at this time with such an incredible um, group of, of people um, and the fact that we can all bring such joy to over 40,000 people um, this Christmas of families and friends and support bubbles being able to share live theatre again. Is it, um, is, it quite a, is it quite a sub? sad moment when you come to the end when you said it's like a family and you're all together is is there a kind of a feeling of real i don't know what the word is really just a feeling of of, of loss yes <laughs> despondency <laughs> at the fact all these close people to you and who've shared this experience with you over these weeks and then suddenly you're going off into your own different directions is it quite a sad time um it it is and it isn't. I mean, I think, you know, that's the thing around live theatre and um, it, it's a fleeting moment. Um, you know, magic is created, um, you know, under those lights, with those costumes, with a cast. And then the moment that it ends and it's off stage, um, it's gone um, forever. Um, even if it's recorded on video, you know, that that moment is lost. And so, um, yeah, there is, there's a sense of, there's a sense of loss. Um, and I think I normally have this process. Um, I think I mentioned at the beginning that um, after an experience like this or, you know, something like Ascot, um, 
you know, I, I kind of, for the week after, everything's a bit of a blur and it's a bit numb. Um, and you kind of feel as though you've just got off a long haul flight. Um, but when you come out the other side, they are the most incredible memories that you carry with you for the rest of your life. Um, and the relationships and the friendships that you build throughout those times, um, you know, are, are solid and real. So, um, yeah. Final question. Sorry, I, I said the last one was a final question, but I just thought of something else I want to ask you. Um, have you ever thought about or ever considered or even missed being, if you like, on the stage doing your thing as opposed to making it all happen behind the scenes? Um, no, never. Um, I um, I actually don't um, don't like being in front of a camera. Um, you know, you've made it very easy for me, so thank you. Um, but actually, I, I I don't feel natural, comfortable um, in front of a camera. Certainly not on stage. Um, so no, behind the scenes um, is is absolutely fine for me. Well, <laughs> well, if if it hel if it helps you, there's a number of phobias that I often talk about with clients. Uh, one is scopophobia, which is the fear of being on camera, and then you've got phonophobia, the fear of hearing <laughs> your own voice. You've got social phobia, being fear fear of being judged. Um, technophobia, the fear of the technology, and then glossophobia, the fear of public speaking. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we've all got one hell of a lot of barriers to get over before we're comfortable in, in doing this stuff in front of the camera. Um, anyway, thanks very much for joining me, Gary. I really appreciate your time. And obviously, I hope the show is an amazing success. Am I right in assuming that there's still tickets available or is it all, or is it all booked up because of the limitations in distancing? No, um, there are still some tickets available. Um, they're moving really, really fast now. I think, you know, with with lockdown and um, and everything else that's happening, um, people have kind of, you know, the bookings are really, really good, but people have been waiting. Um, but since really about 10 days ago, the tickets are starting to fly. So do book now, but they're going fast. Fantastic. Right. Wonderful. Oh, thanks for joining me, Gary. Really appreciate it. And I'm sure I'll be catching you again. Maybe next time you'll be on stage in a year's time <laughs> and you'll surprise us all. <laughs> thanks very much, Gary. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, Phil. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.